<laughs> Fantastic. Welcome back, everyone. Did you did you notice the new jingle that that we've been playing for three <laughs> weeks? I guess at this point. Wait, let's start over because it's already been playing. Ha ha. ha, ha. Uh, don't you miss the old jingle, Christian? No, I like this one much better. That other one was me too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked your jingle. It was it was good, but uh, I it. You know, it served its purpose. Yeah, it, it 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 got us where we were going. But for season two, we had to we we had to upgrade. Yeah, upgrade everything. I was going for like a more like a science fictiony thing. Seeing so we've done this is our third science fiction movie we've done, and we kind of brainstormed about just continuing that trend the rest of the season. We'll see if we keep oh, it up. Oh, I think it fits. Uh, so when we do um, old westerns, ooh, that's um, gonna be fun, dude. Season, ah. It's gonna be fun. We're gonna have a Western theme. Hell yeah! I'm very excited to do that one. I'm all about that, man. <laughs> I bought uh, on vinyl. I bought uh, Io uh, Morricone, that uh, Italian composer. Oh, yeah, I bought yeah. one of his uh, he, a, a fistful of dollars um, soundtrack uh, score rather mm-hmm. on vinyl last year. Uh, he I think he, cool. I think he died last year, but um, <clears throat> sound mm-hmm. is great. I've always loved like Western sounding music and all that sort of stuff. And some of my favorite songs come from that. And, like Spanish folk, very grand. Yeah, it's always it's just it's a, always a good time. I think so. I don't know why I've always gravitated t- towards that sort of music, but it's just always been my favorite. Um, so yeah, but very cool, very cool. But none of that has anything to do with <laughs> with this <laughs> with week's topics. Christian, what are we covering this week? We are covering 1999, our third 1999 movie in a row, The Iron Is Giant. Is it in ni- 99 yeah. as well? Uh huh. <laughs> it's like the 99 season. <laughs> I totally... Well, I guess we just have to do a 99 season yeah. <laughs> at this point if we've already done three. Um, the Iron Giant, uh, classic animated film, and we're doing uh, Ezra Furman's Perpetual Motion People, 2015, I believe. Um, 2015, yeah. correct. So, um, yeah, we uh, like, like we've kind of hinted at a little bit um, in the last couple of episodes, you know, we've been... We had the idea of like trying to do like science fiction stuff with like a brainstorming activity, and we came up with mm-hmm. these movies through that. Um, where we were like, let's try, let's do an animated film. We haven't done an animated film yet, um, mm-hmm. and there's lots of you know fantastic animated films out there. Um, mm-hmm. We're like, well, so what'll be our first one we'll do, and then one that like fits this sort of theme we've been kind of following so far, and it was mm-hmm. the Iron Giant. Um, Iron Which Giant. is oh my goodness! If you haven't seen it, I don't pause this. Go watch it. Come back because yeah, yeah, yeah. Just ignore us because and and go watch the Iron Giant. If you watched it as a kid but you haven't watched it again as an adult, um, it holds up. Yeah, it absolutely so holds up. So post now. Now we're in spoiler territory. Alec, what is what is the Iron Giant? The Iron Giant is said in the nineteen sixties, fifty seven, nineteen fifties, fifty seven. Set in the 1950s, um, Maine, uh, in the Northeast America, in a small um, seaside town where there start to be rumors circulating that there is a, a giant metal monster that's lurking in the woods around the town. And we as the audience, we, we see the, 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 the sneak peeks and everything, and then we, we see actually see the giant. The monster is real, but it's not really a monster. It, it starts to form... Um, a, an interesting little friendship with a young um, 
outcast, uh, like a 10 year old boy who's all into science fiction stories and, and comic books. And it's kind of, kind of the weird kid in, in his school. So, uh, they form an unlikely friendship and the military gets involved and they're trying to hunt down the, the giant monster and the young boys trying to keep them away. And it's just kind of a very pulpy fun story that is just significantly elevated beyond the sum of its parts somehow like everything and everything is incredible but everything to like individually is great but together it's just something else entirely it just tugs at all the heartstrings oh yeah i i would say man i had not watched this movie in years and i watched it mm-hmm. this week and i was like this is a good movie <laughs> and i dude i'd forgotten i was crying I was crying at the end scene. Oh yeah, when he's going, yeah. when he when he's going up and he closes his eyes and says Superman. Superman yeah, dude. it's good. It's good. Yeah. That's a good movie. I um I had forgotten, and you know the movie ends, and then it's just like directed by Brad Bird. I'd forgotten that Brad Bird directed. This is his first movie he directed. Yeah. He went on, so yeah. you know who he is. He went on to direct like Ratatouille and The Incredibles and uh, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and his sort mm-hmm. of signatures even in like live action stuff. You can kind of tell, but um man. Like I was, I was like, this is, and it's, yeah. this movie's actually kind of deep too. It was like a kids movie, but it covers mm-hmm. like existentialism and like the military industrial complex and like mm-hmm. you know just common humanity, pa- patriotism, nationalism, like nationalistic, yeah. Uh, also, code wa- the Cold War, uh, uh, but seen through the eyes of like the adults in the Cold War and the eyes of like children gun, through gun it. violence. Um, yeah, propaganda, like so much yeah. stuff, so many like complex themes, but in a very um, kind of intimate, very very sweet story. Because it's a part mm-hmm. of this, a big, I say a big part of this, you know, story is about friendship. Really, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of the root of everything that branches off from there. It's more fantastical sort of things, but uh, yeah, friendship between a, a, a very innocent but powerful being and a little boy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hogarth Hughes is the uh, main character. Hogarth. 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 And um, Hughes. I I had for, I didn't really realize this. I guess when I watched this years ago, but you get a little taste of Hogarth's humanity a little bit, or at least his uh, part or soul that he sort of talks about um, at a certain point in the movie before he meets the giant, where you're introduced to him and he's trying to essentially sell to his mother that he wants to adopt this squirrel he found. <laughs> Um, and he's like but it needs a home and apparently he has a history of doing this where he had found like a raccoon and brought that in and it caused Mm -hmm. a bunch of problems and now he's got the squirrel which he brings into his the diner his mother works at and it causes a bunch of problems and then now he has this this giant metal man (laughs) that he wants to bring in Mm -hmm. cause a bunch of problems Um, so it's part of that initial diner scene really sets up like the the tone of the movie but also the characters themselves so Sets up Hogarth, as you just described. His mother is, like, a hardworking mother, but she does still care about her son and his interest, even though she doesn't understand them, because she says, all right, let me see the the pet. Let me see the squirrel. Yeah. Uh, it sets up Dean as, you know, he said, if we don't stick up for the kooks, who else, who else will? will? Like, so he's got that, that kind of love for the underdog as well, which yes. sets him up to... You know, later in the movie, any other functioning, rational adult Responsible would be like, adult. Uh, let's not <laughs> harbor this giant metal man. Yeah. Um, but he does. He's like, yeah. And then he's just like hanging out. So it's it, it, there's all these kid movie situations 
like intertwined with the story in the movie like the the whole lake scene basically yeah. <laughs> is like this fantastical scene but it makes sense in the context of like the characters and how they would react in these situations and it's all established i think very well in that opening diner scene yeah i think um one of the things that i really wanted to do in our sort of conversation is i guess what we've kind of already been doing here is just like talking through all these characters in this in this movie because <clears throat> they all like for example so if i go back to dean uh, you know i didn't i kind of forgotten the plot of a lot of the details of the movie i guess but um, you know, I was kind of surprised to see that Dean was—he worked at like a scrapyard. Um, mm-hmm. When you first see him again, because he's in the diner and he's wearing like all black, and he's got like the sunglasses on, he's got black hair, and then mm-hmm. everyone else is wearing like more like towny clothes and less cool. He, he basically is like a cool kind of guy, right? He's got a little like soul yeah. patch and stuff, and like five o'clock shadow, yeah. um, and like black boots and all this sort of stuff, and. Um, he sort of stands out amongst everybody else around him. And then the next time you see him, he's wearing like a, like sort of like a jumpsuit, like a, like a repairman suit. And he's driving a um, repair truck. But then you get to, which I didn't feel like that fit his uh, personality, but then you get to the junkyard and you see that like, he's collecting all this junk so he can like make art out of it basically. Um, mm-hmm. And the, and he tells the joke about how it's like, am I a, a scrap man who uh, sells art or a <laughs> artist who sells scrap or whatever? Um, yeah, yeah, and also okay. That's that's pretty interesting. I, that was that was a cool little caveat. But I think that Dean represents kind of what you were talking about at that time. Maybe he's even singled out, not just by how he's dressed in the diner compared to everybody else, but when he does stick mm-hmm. up for that old man, he calls the kook. He um, he said, "Who we don't stick up for the kooks? Who who will?" Um, and then. You know, right before that, he's basically to defend him. He had said, "He's like, hey, I saw it too." And the guy's like, "I rest my case." Because <laughs> they just like look at Dean, and they're just like, "Oh, well, yeah, he clearly yeah. is an out- outsider." Um, it's a very Dean's a great character because they could have easily made that character just like a straight up hippie, yeah, or, or or someone who who's all like, "Make love, man, not war." But they made him like kind of suave yeah you know they there's someone that appeals more to 1999 sensibilities than probably they did in that time mm-hmm. but it, he's a more approachable and sympathetic figure i think the way they presented him i think it was a smart decision yeah and it took um you know it's not the sort of tale where um you know hogarth and dean bond pretty quickly even though you know the squirrel went up his pants and he's like oh he's freaking out um, yeah. they bonded over like, I guess, uh, sticking up for like, outcasts and, and Hogarth he, himself is sort of established as outcast of school, at least, um, mm-hmm. through, you know, he's just like, he's like a nerd and he does his homework and, um, you know, he's in the comic books and that sort of stuff and all the other kids sort of make fun of him for that. But, um, you get, you get, um, the Hogarth still has to, even though they have that sort of connection, Hogarth still has to convince, you know, Dean to help him through this. And yeah, he it wasn't yeah. such an easy you know, thing to do, um, where he basically wore him down. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He really did. Um, yeah. and that's one of my favorite little edits in the movie actually is when he's like, he, they're sitting outside the junkyard and in two chairs and Dean looks exhausted. He has like some coffee in. and he's like, he needs a home and like, he needs food and shelter. And then, and then he like just stands up and walks away. And then it just says like 37 Ooh. minutes later, <laughs> flashes on the screen and it cuts Dude, that, that moment. Where he gets up is my favorite bit of comedy in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. It's just that <laughs> static shot where he stands up and then he pours his coffee out right. and then 
walks in. There's a lot of like those comedic moments. So the the movie does such a good job balancing its drama and it's more like fantastical things. But like those little character moments, I think really make the movie feel like lived in and real. Yeah. Um, like that moment with pouring the coffee when um, Kent is on the phone in the kitchen and the general makes him repeat what he saw, a giant metal man, uh-huh. and he sees that goofy <laughs> oven mitt. Yeah, with that its like tongue sticking around. out at him. Yeah. It's like, so in a movie today, I think made more children's movies, like you would have establishing shots of that oven mitt leading up. So it's like the joke is kind of spread out over like a period of time. Mm-hmm. But literally, that's the first time you see that oven mitt. So, like, the whole joke is just concentrated in that one moment. And it's so fun. And, like, we've all done, we've just, you know, been talking on the phone and we see something that, like, we think is staring back at us. Yeah. And then one more moment that I really loved that they animated it in when Hogarth and his mom are leaving the power plant. She's turning the car around and they hit a bump in the road and both of them like shuffle in their sh- in their seats. Oh. Like it seemed it was such like an unnecessary thing, but it just added so much to me of like these are characters like in a world like this world exists. Yeah, I'd say um, one of the things I was thinking about because I after I watched it the first time and realized that you know Brad Bird had directed it, I was kind of thinking about the parallels between uh, I guess the, maybe the the storyboarding or the cinematography of what I was seeing to the Incredibles. And um, there's a lot of like throughout the movie, there's, there's, there truly is like cinematography different than what you'd may see, like maybe a, some Pixar movies, I, I suppose. But uh, I felt that there's a lot of like close up shots and like weird sort of angles of, of characters at certain times to like add to the mm-hmm. drama or expression that they're, or emotion that they're trying to convey at different points of time, especially with Dean, Dean, Dean and, um, uh, what was his name? Mansley. Um, what do we say his name? Kent, Kent Mansley. Mansley. He works for the government. Kent Mansley works for the government. They they're they get I feel like the most room to like act so to speak in the in the world. I'd say um, they both mm-hmm. kind of have like a lot of dialogue, especially Mansley um, throughout the movie. And um, I, I I the the the, the 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 his his face Kent Mansley's face actually reminded me of Syndrome's face. Um, adult adult syndrome mm. and uh, yeah yeah and um, I see it a little bit now Incredibles, um, especially when he got had those like sort of sinister looks when he's like trying to convince Hogarth like we got we got we have to we have to like uh, be the best in the world and anyone who made this mm-hmm. and it's not us it's our enemy or whatever and it's got this like super mm-hmm. close look in his face and his eyes and he's trying to draw that intensity I I remember that seeing that in in syndrome a lot in the Incredibles, um, mm. building up that sort of uh, antagonist. But uh, speaking of Kent Mansley, who works for the government, um, he's he's an interesting character, I think. He's not entirely wrong. The way he goes about his investigative work, I mean, he's obviously an, an asshole. Yeah. But he's not wrong in trying to figure out, like, what is going on. Because something is crazy going on. And I can see how that character placed in that job that he has would kind of like like that fuse of him making irrational decisions yeah i i got um there's a moment in the movie where you he he kind of has a monologue where he basically explains why he thinks the way he thinks 
essentially. Right, right. And he's explaining this to like a 10-year-old boy because <laughs> he's yeah, out of his doesn't, mind. doesn't give a shit. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, he's literally saying, you know, like, while you're all asleep, we're in Washington and we're wide awake and worried. And, and like, why, why mm-hmm. are we wide awake and worried? Because we, we didn't build this thing. And if anyone who uh, – if we didn't build it, then someone else built it and they're our enemy because of that. Sort of like a very mm-hmm. black and white sort of perspective uh, on mm-hmm. – um, what is happening basically he does he he never at any point in the movie shows that similar compassion that hogarth shows or his mother annie shows or that dean shows mm-hmm. or even the general that he works for shows so even the general cracks near the end of the movie because kent lies mm-hmm. to him and tells him that the iron giant had killed uh, the boy is what he said and then later maybe like 10 minutes later he's like the boy's alive and when they're trying to convince yeah. him to not uh fire an atomic bomb at him. Um, yeah. and, but no, Kent is still has that conviction of like, no, we have to, we have to do that. Like, he's yeah. so in that camp of like, we have to um, eliminate all these enemies, which is kind of interesting. The general, general, I like him a lot more watching this time. Cause he's such a, like he is a rational character. Mm-hmm. Like he, you know, he, he doesn't believe in the fantastical story that Kent's Mansley's, he works for the government <laughs> has been <laughs> talking about, uh, and then he sees the giant, and then he goes along, you know, let's blast it. But then the general clearly sees, he even has that line dialogue, we've, we've used everything we've got. Yeah. And then when he sees the giant is no longer posing as a threat to his men, and also he is not, you know, he didn't kill Hogarth. Like, he seems to be handling him very well. I think that's a smart in-the-moment decision. And I know I'm, like, overthinking this, but mm. it just, it, it leads back into, like, the groundedness of like that world yeah, is like, he says, let's everyone stand down because we have to try something different. And I think that's what like an actual leader would do yeah. in that situation. Yeah. And that's the sort of, that's the interesting thing to me about Kent. Um, so he works for like the Bureau, the, the Bureau of Unexplained Phenomenon. That's what it said, like B U P on his badge. Um, oh, really? I didn't even notice. That. And, um, it seemed to me like he was – well, I guess you, they kind of tell you a little bit that he has this reputation of being kind of an outcast in his department or wherever he works. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and he's got a little chip on his shoulder. He's trying to get on to bigger and better things. Yeah, he's an outcast as well, like Kogarth is. And, but he's choosing to respond to it, I think, in a much uh, different way with uh, like a lack of compassion. And even when – it seems like he was specifically sent to this little town in Maine – uh, which mm-hmm. he, when he got there, he's like, oh, so what do you think? It's escape gorilla or something? It's like big, big things happen in big places, and this is not a big place. So he looks, he all everything he says when you first introduced him, introduced to him, he's he's or like he's jo- cracking jokes about it being like a small little shitty town. Uh, he's like the only big thing that happened here is probably the homecoming queen or some shit like that. <laughs> he said something like that. Yeah, uh, that that freaking line. It seems like he was sent to this small town as like a punishment. It seems. Um, yeah, or he's just like no one likes him, so we're gonna give him the the small out of the way job. Yeah, and he like couldn't wait to get back to you know DC, um, which said his office is there, I suppose. But like they they they're trying to like he's they're giving him like the shit detail basically, yeah. um, and then he yeah, stumbles yeah. upon this huge uh, situation, this huge phenomenon, <laughs> the Department of Unexplained Phenomena. Um, but yeah, no, I thought um, so. Another thing that. You know, it's kind of tangents from his little speech he gives to Hogarth was that um, uh, about um, 
his, his attitude, I think, is also sort of paralleled by some of the kids that were, like, bullying Hogarth at school's attitude, mm-hmm. where they're all sort of guessing what this monster could be, because no one's, like, really seen it yet, but Hogarth has seen it. Um, and you know, he, he puts out an idea that's just as fantastical as everyone else's, but he's the only one where the kids are like, yeah, they said, what up. would you know about it? Poindexter is like, whatever it is, we should blow it to smithereens. Like that's like their attitude. Now keep in mind, right. this is happening. This conversation is happening while the teacher is showing a video on the projector, um, of what the kids should do in case of like, uh, atomic Holocaust is what it like puts on the screen, yeah. and it's literally telling him like hide. It says duck and cover, like hide under your desk, and then it shows the yeah. like, animation of it destroying everything, but like the kid under their desk and everything else. Under, is yeah, completely destroyed. So while they're like seeing this like weird like safety propaganda, they're also having this conversation about like how they should use that same force against like this unknown thing, um, mm-hmm. because this is like we said, this is set in 1957. So this is during the Cold War era where there's just always like the communists are right behind you. The communists are in your cereal. Mm-hmm. The communists are, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. And they're just everyone's like super high, highly tense and stressed about, you know, bending off the enemy. And we have recently, like you know, what was it, 13 years before this, 12, 12 years before that date, uh, 57? had used an atomic bomb to, like, blow up Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So pe- the world is, like, mm-hmm. well aware of the power of that um, yeah. on a huge scale and that America has that power and no one else should have that sort of power. So you see the kids being brainwashed, mm-hmm. that stuff, but then you see the adults are also kind of in that mind state. At least adults that are in the government yeah. are also in that sort of mind state, which I thought was um, really interesting. And then you have Hogarth's mom who, like, just cares about making ends meet. Yeah. Like all that other thing, everything else is just kind of window dressing to like the daily grind. Yeah. She cares about that. Dean's just concerned about his art, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones that have, I guess the more compassion, the ones that aren't like, I guess do that doing that sort of day to day sort of thing or, or actively being fed that propaganda at school. Cause I imagine it's like different for a, for like a kid at that time who's going to school versus like an adult who, you know, like Hilgar's mom, you know, probably yeah. went to school like a couple decades before this, um, that they're not actively being like faced with this. Even like the comic books that, you know, Hogarth was reading like the Atomo comic book which is like nuclear robot thing that's going to destroy the world that we have to kill. And then there's even like Superman mm-hmm. who at the time in comic comics was like, used as a figure of or a symbol of patriotism or nationalism um, and had mm-hmm. been for like a couple of decades at that point. Um, they're just constantly surrounded by all this sort of stuff. And so then you have a kid who's then literally faced with like the most powerful thing that he or anyone else has ever seen. And instead of responding to that with this, all this sort of these ideas and themes that he's told he should feel about what's going on, he responds a different way. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, I think even Hogarth kind of had a bit of a sort of character arc. He's not just um, all good, you know, all the time or whatever. I think even in the beginning, Hogarth, uh, he was, the way he meets the giant, he's like, it's invaders from Mars. He immediately assumes Mm -hmm. that, like, if there were aliens to come down to Earth, they're here to kill us, and so they're our enemy. Mm -hmm. And so he grabs his little BB gun and puts on his little, like, helmet and runs out into the woods with his boots. Uh, he's gonna stop him and you know that's how he meets the giant um and of course the, when he's given the choice of what to do there 
you know, he sees that the giant is being hurt. And so he tries to help the giant by like mm-hmm. cutting the power off instead of trying to shoot it, you know? Um, yeah. Like finish the job, let him, let him suffer. He makes that, he makes that, that conscious choice uh, at the beginning. And that's ultimately the catalyst for why they be- become friends, that choice he makes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was, so I think, you know, that he goes through that. And then even, you know, he has to sort of learn, I think Hogarth even had to kind of learn, um, he was faced with a lot of like harsh realities. Like one, I think the darkest scene in the movie was, was when Mansley is essentially interrogating him in the shed and he's got the sort of like light on him and, and he's like, we're going to yeah. take you away from your mother. And, and he's like, you can't do that. And he's like, we can do whatever we want to like, do. Oh, we can. And, yeah. And then he like takes some chloroform and like puts it over his mouth, the cloth. And it's just like, damn, this is <laughs> got really dark. Um, but it was all a dream, so it's okay, I guess. I don't know. That's what he tried to like sell to him. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, but also, so basically Hogarth becomes a teacher to the giant, you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that stood out to me watching it this time was um, he says the word, he, the, the giant sees, uh, or they hear a deer that they saw get shot, and then they go over to the sound, they see that the deer is dead, and then he has to explain to him like what death is. Um, mm-hmm. And then he explains... Life and death and souls. Yeah, and he explains what a, what a gun is. And he's like, he's like, that's a gun. He's like, gun? He's like, guns kill. He says the word, guns kill. Um, and I was like, that's that's kind of interesting. That's kind of that 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 because uh, there's that um, there's that uh, un, lack of nuanced debate of uh, do guns kill people or do people kill people, right? Mm. Um, which there's obviously there's a gray area in there. But uh, I thought that was interesting that they use those exact words. Like Hogarth uses those exact words. He's like guns kill. Um, in talking to the giant. So what do you think, what do you think this movie's, because obviously there's this whole like a military industrial complex stuff that's going on, but with like guns specifically, um, is there any commentary like specifically about guns or is it just another metaphor, would you say, for like who the giant should be, I guess? I think there's definitely... Well, that latter part, who the giant should be, that fits in with the movie. I think that's the movie's primary focus is all about the Hogarth and the giant's journey. Mm-hmm. But as far as like commentary, I think it definitely is because you can't have a character literally be a weapon and then that character chooses to use the his, his powers, his, his weapons for good. He doesn't use them to kill. He makes the conscious choice. Even though he, he loses control, um, at times, I, I, I don't know how you can watch the movie and think it's like not anti-gun. Yeah. Or even just apolitical, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, 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 I mean, guns, guns kill. Like you were just saying, like that is the purpose of a gun. That's like its only purpose really. We're going to get an email being like, <laughs> what about super soakers? <laughs> Squirt guns don't kill people. <laughs> um, no, that's that's the 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 primary reason of a gun is to damage. Hot glue guns. It's, it's to to in, to inflict pain. Okay, well now we're just getting pedantic. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you, you have the military shooting at the giant, and it's doing nothing. It's just causing more destruction. The giant, when he's a gun, more destruction. And the the choice of of not using his weapons, and then like good things happen. I think 
that's kind of a clear message. Yeah. You know, that's the interesting thing about this is that um, no, you never really find out exactly why the giant is there. But you can infer mm-hmm. from when he responds to, as a defense mechanism, essentially, to, like, destroy everything in sight that... Ooh, so that's... That's interesting. So I, I take it you watched the original theatrical version. Um, I guess so. Yeah. What, was there another version? Yes. There. So a couple of years ago, there's a version released on on Blu-ray, um, where it adds in deleted scenes. Yeah. Uh, like they finished up the. I think the scenes weren't even like fully animated. I think they went back and like, like finished that animation. Uh, but one, it, it shows like his home planet. Oh. Um, actually, so I watched the original theatrical version this time too, but I'm just I'm kind of going back on what I remember. Yeah, it shows like a war torn like planet, um, and I can't remember the catalyst of him leaving that planet to get to Earth, but I'm guessing it was something more of like the Superman origin story because they kind of alluded to that. Yeah, and I think it was literally like mirroring you know Superman's world. Krypton yeah. was you know, at war and blowing up and he was sent to, um, to survive. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they cut that scene and I, I'm glad they did after seeing both scenes. I'm really, cause it's, it, it detracts. Yeah, I think so. From, from the story itself. Like it's the, the proper, the story they were wanting to tell, I think is perfect as it is. I think adding like the, the tragic giant backstory, it's just unnecessary. Yeah. And I'm glad they cut it for the original version. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could say, I mean, that's something I was thinking about as the movie was ending. I was like, this is probably the best Superman movie ever made <laughs> because yeah. it really covers all of these themes in a very similar story in a lot better way. You get to see these different levels of people's reaction to this powerful being that's that, where they don't know mm-hmm. where it came from or what its intentions are or anything like that. Um, Whereas, you know, with the other Superman movies that have happened, that's not really that's not really explored in like the Chris Donner Superman, the original Superman seventy nine, I think it was, seventy eight. Mm-hmm. Um the the Richard R- Donner, Richard Donner. Christopher Reed. Sorry. <laughs> Chris, Rich, no, I do I, I dude, just shorten it. Chris, Chris Donner. Donner. The Chris Donner put it all together. Um where where that is more just like people are pretty much immediately just accepting of Superman. That that's not even a part of the movie at all. Um, mm-hmm. and they tried to do that a little bit with like Batman versus Superman through like a montage. And then that was kind of really it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, um, with this movie, you know, I think not knowing, not knowing where he came from, uh, and all that sort of like backstory, I think is good because it then shifts attention more to like all of these people on earth, they don't know. And it's more about like how they're reacting to it rather than like knowing for sure. Or it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, um, Let's say a movie like Independence Day, for example. It's kind of immediately established, you know, basically they, they just destroyed huge parts of the world, like in the first act of the movie, yeah. basically, you know. Or a movie like uh, War of the Worlds, where a kind of similar thing happened. You don't really know. Wh- I think, I, I guess, I can't remember if in Independence Day they, you find out. It wasn't like they wanted like Earth's water or something. I can't remember. But then, uh, and then War of the Worlds, um, you don't actually find out why they're there either. Um, they just start like shooting everybody. So they pop out of the ground and Mm -hmm. you know, that sort of, you know, obviously war of the worlds is like based on a, I think it's pretty sure it's like based on an old like science fiction novel, but, um, 
the the expectation that if there were another being a foreign enemy, whether it's you know some in the movie thought it was like oh the, did the Russians send this or did the Chinese send this whatever, mm. or it's literally an extraterrestrial uh, society that sent something to Earth. It and it it has to be the against us uh, basically. Where you just simply mm-hmm. like, you immediately jump to that conclusion, like it was sent here. It's not just here. It's not a coincidence that it was here. It came here. It was sent here to do something to us. Um, yeah. Then how do you respond to that? That's more interesting, I think. So I'm glad they cut out the. Yeah. <laughs> I got they cut out the backstory. Um, yeah, and I think the giant himself, like as an audience member, I love discovering it along with the characters in the movie. Like, oh, the giants. A child, he's very curious. It's like, oh, the giant's good. It's like, oh, the giant's bad. It's like, oh, is the giant good? Like, it, you're, you're, you're going on this, you're, you're, you're going on the journey with them. Yeah, it, it's much more fun that way than to get like, oh, so we know the secret history of the giant that no one else knows about. It just, yeah, I, I think it takes away. And you know, speaking of the giant, uh, he's he's sort of portrayed as like a child, basically. You know, very innocent. Yeah. Um, learning everything kind of from like from scratch, basically, not just about mm-hmm. the world he's in, but even like who he is as a person, as a being, like what he wants mm-hmm. to be as a being. Um, and you know, I uh, I guess another fun fact for for all you uh, ha 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 listeners is that uh, so the giant is actually voiced by Vin Diesel of the f- the Fast and the Furious fame, um, which I guess when I was younger. Like I, I I knew that I've known that for like a long long time, but um, I was thinking about um, you can really you can really just hear his voice in there. I, I was thinking initially he just kind of said like one word, but he says like sentences throughout the movie. No, you you hear the Vin Diesel ish like coming through the giant. Yeah, and it's so good. It is good. He's so good in that. Yeah, that's probably why I got the the uh, Groot the Groot gig. <laughs> what do you think? Mm-hmm. I would imagine. I would say there might be some parallels between Groot and. The Iron Giant, wouldn't you say? I feel like they're both very like innocent, yes. powerful <laughs> um, beings that don't say much. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and are both voiced by Vin Diesel. Actually, I think the Giant's got a lot to say. Oh yeah, I guess you could argue Groot does too. But the Giant, like, like before, like in the first half of the movie, he's uh, he's just asking questions, he's learning, but then he yeah. starts having his own thoughts and his own like ideas of how to manipulate that the information he's received yeah i think he was also pretty eager too like there's a scene yeah absolutely there's a scene where uh hogarth is trying to describe the town he lives in rockwell and he's like he's like rockwell it's like yeah there's people down there and stuff he's like ooh, and he starts running towards the city and then hogarth's like Mm -hmm. you can't you can't go there yet you got to stop and he's like why because like people aren't ready yet and so he's kind of like shackled to this sort of existence in the shadows um even though he seems to want to, you know, spread his wings, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, something that I was thinking about actually was, um, you know, the movie ends, and the atomic bomb blows up the giant, which is really sad. And then you know you find out that uh, really sad. <laughs> it's like heartbreaking, it is, man. It is very sad. Dude, uh, I was tearing up because um, it's so. Uh, and Hogarth says, I love you right before he blasts yeah. off. Oh, my and God. And Superman closes his eye. That's fucked up. But you find out that the giant is not actually dead. He was just dismembered, like, all over the world, apparently. Um, 
And I never thought about associating the word dismembered with that scene, <laughs> but like, I mean, yeah, <laughs> you're totally right. Um, and I just never thought about it as being that gruesome. Something I was thinking about was like, so, um, I, I you're, the audience is left to their imagination on this. It's like, so how did he get here? on earth um and why is he there or is it just all coincidence or whatever but i imagine it's like well mm -hmm. i would assume let's say if some aliens did send him to destroy the earth or whatever which i think the only argument mm -hmm. to that to that being his intention is, is literally the scene where he's like distraught basically because he thinks hogarth is dead and then he like turns mm -hmm. around and turns into fucking like super destroyer <laughs> and i was like holy shit into a tom like dialed yeah. up to like 11 <laughs> zero to 100 real quick he was like super chill, and all of a sudden he's got like three heads, and he's like, he shot a thing at a tank, and it just like evaporated. It was like, oh fuck. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the only argument there to say like, I think maybe he was probably actually sent here to kill everybody, but not knowing that, yeah. not knowing for sure, I was yeah. thinking based on how the movie ends with him not being dead, and his little bump in his head is out now. I would assume that if someone did send him there then they would probably send, like, another one <laughs> later <laughs> to, like, see what the fuck happens to the first one they sent. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, how, how does the story progress from there? Because people are still going to, I imagine, be afraid of, like, what is he going to do, basically, you know? He's, mm. he's in Iceland. And I think that's, yeah, it, it's like, it, that's a more complex movie. Yeah. If, like, because then you're, you're, the discovery part of like something like that, that's the most fun part, I think, for like a storytelling perspective. Because if you go into another movie, like a hypothetical sequel, where the giant um, is having to like integrate himself into our world, then you're you're dealing with the issues that we just kind of flirted with in the first movie, but you have to dive into them more, I feel like. Plus, you run the risk of like, other giants showing up and like there's yeah. a bad giant versus a good giant. And that just completely detracts yeah. from the story of the first. Exactly. One. And I think that is something that that's the, that's the trap of movies like this that can become franchises where it's like, mm -hmm. where there's lots of films where the first movie is really great at exploring themes, but in an interesting and cool kind of way, maybe even like a sci science fiction sort of way. And then, mm -hmm the sequels are just like, oh, we want to see more of the science fiction-y stuff, but then the themes get lost. Case yeah. in point, Jurassic Park, or maybe even The mm. Matrix, honestly. Um, I was going to say, well, The Matrix, at, at the very least, it does take the time to go into those themes. It, yeah, it continues to like, do that. Hard. Yeah. But, I mean, whether they succeeded or the story went in the way that, you know, people would have wanted is definitely up for debates, but at least I think the matrix matrix itself expanded upon everything established in the first movie. Yeah. And like gave everything time. Yeah. And even you could argue the fast and the furious, <laughs> uh, series mm. saga, but I'd say for sure Jurassic park and we'll probably end up doing Jurassic park uh, one yeah. day, but, um, That's I, I have uh, strong feelings about, uh, all of those movies, but you know, I really, really love the first Jurassic park movie. Um, mm -hmm. but I feel, yeah, the iron giant, it's like having that smile at the end. It's perfect. You know, he's alive. And then that's, that's all you need to, to, to end on. Yeah. Yeah. You got that. It's, it's not so much about like the, it's, it's definitely, this movie is very theme heavy, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's very very theme heavy similar to yeah like i was saying jurassic park where it's all that's that's a movie that's about like scientific ethics basically that became like let's see dinosaurs fight and it's like you're missing the point here yeah yeah that's that's not really and so i think it's good and that's actually the next question i had for you is like do you think that they will ever make a uh a, to actually guess two questions do you think they'll ever make one a sequel to this or two do you think they'll make a live action version of this movie and would you like to see either of those? Uh, no, I hope not, and no. no. <laughs> Why not? Uh, I touched a bit upon this earlier. I think the movie works because you do have this fantastical element that you can only do in animation. Okay. So when when the giant, so it's the the second meeting between Hogarth and the giant where the giant starts mimicking what Hogarth's doing and he starts figuring out when the giant sits down, you can see this like layering of the background, like the earth pops up and then the trees pop up at like a different angle. Yeah. So it's like all the trees literally like uprooted themselves into the air and back down. Uh Um, And it should, the shot works. It absolutely works. But that's one of those things you couldn't really like get that same effect out of it. Right. Same thing with like the lake. Like, I love the little lake scene where Dean, like, like literally a lake's worth of water that's, like, two or three stories tall goes through a forest. Yeah. And you see Dean, like, float <laughs> like, sh- in onto the road. And then immediately, like, ten seconds later, a truck comes by. <laughs> and it's just like, all right. Yeah. Like, those moments, I think, make the Iron Giant. And you, that's, you could see, that's a good point. produce similar you know, scenes and feelings to, to accentuate that. But I think animation was yeah. absolutely the right subject matter for this. Cause it really does feel like a comic book. Yeah. Um, to come to life. I was thinking like, if they did make this live action, I would just want them to do it like shot for shot. Like, I don't, I don't know if they could do it. Any of the, I don't, I don't think they could even they could do, do Well, that. I think similar to like, maybe like they did with like the Watchmen where it was just like, it's like the whole movie is just like the exact same, just live mm-hmm. action, I guess. Uh, but then, if you're gonna do it shot to shot, like why are you why are you even making it? Yeah, do that's it. A point. Yeah, it's a good point. It would have to be some sort of like adaptation of it or whatever. I Plus, suppose. you were talking about like the the cinematography and how everything's shot. It's just so beautiful. That's why I was saying like I would yeah. only want them to use like the same shots. You know? I feel like you know you have more people come on, they would want to do it like different, yeah. and then you would have these shots in the movie that didn't exist really. In the in the original, you know, okay. Since we're you know this is our first animated you know thing we were talking about, uh, movie we're talking about. Actually, uh, another example of that is something that they did. They've been they've been doing that with a lot of these Disney movies, you know, recently where they're making like the live action version of some of these movies that, that right. came out uh, maybe in like the '90s and stuff. So recently they did uh, they did Aladdin, which Aladdin is one of my favorites of of that era of Disney movies, and um, you know they did a live action version of that with Will Smith a couple of like I think it was like a couple years ago. And um, I didn't. I don't think it translated very well. Um, and it seemed like it kind of had. You know, obviously, you know, they cast Will Smith to play the genie, um, and he's you know following up you know Robin Williams, who like basically kind of like made that movie what it is, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And then also it was directed by um, what is his name, the guy who did the Sherlock Holmes movies, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie. Uh, it was directed by Guy Ritchie, and I was like, okay, this might be kind of cool. But then just like I. I what I thought about as I was watching it, or maybe after I'd watched it, I was just like, there are certain things in this that just can't be, like, tra- that are just, or at least weren't, or there are certain things that were animated that, like, were very signature and expressive of what was happening that they couldn't really do in live action. 
Um, yeah. At least they, they maybe you could do it, but they failed to do it. Similar thing happened with like when they did Lion King and like maybe even the Jungle Book, where it's like when you're seeing these like they're not what's it called anthropomorphic creatures in the mm-hmm. remakes where they were in the cartoons where they have kind of like human features and expressions on their face, and they're going for like photorealism in these yeah. in these newer movies, and it just it you lose you're you're losing something there. And I think one of the things you're losing is is that. Um, uh, I don't know, a bit of the fantasy and something that's a part of that medium that's very um, yeah. unique. And so, yeah, I think, I, I would think it would be cool to see a live action vote, but if they did, like I said, I want them to just do it like shot for shot. Um, but yes. Cause it, cause but I, I, I would hate it. I just know I would. <laughs> I know in like 30 seconds of watching it, there'd be like a specific shot that I'd be like, fuck, this, this does not <laughs> respect the original maybe like, what if the, what if brad bird did it though okay. what if brad bird was the director of it though what if he did it so dumb i wouldn't i wouldn't watch it <laughs> I'd wa- i wouldn't watch it out of spite not my iron giant <laughs> hashtag not my <laughs> iron giant okay do you think the opening shot would exist with the and i so specifically the, me- the satellite the meteor going through all the planets but the score man that like very light-hearted score playing with that so you know ultimately this is gonna be like a fun movie like you know you're gonna have like that you you get inherently that the giant's a force of good just based off the music cue yeah and i just don't think we would get that i think we'd get something more moody and like mysterious well that's the thing in a remake i thought the whole setup and presentation of this movie seems like it could easily have been made live act let's say this they didn't let's say they decided to make like conscious decision to just make it live action mm-hmm. instead of animated. Like, mm-hmm. it's presented in a way that seems like it could easily be live action. It's got that kind of, like, ominous but sort of weird sort of music playing. And, like I said, even the shots of people, of the characters and the music and, like, everything. I was just like, this could be translated. I thought about that when it, when it came to, um, oh, there's some other animated movie that I was thinking about. That was like, this is, this is like, this could, I, I feel like they could easily translate. I can't think of what it is now. Obviously, there's a billion failures of taking something that's animated and trying to make it live action. The biggest example of that, I would say, would probably be The Last Airbender. Oh, my God. Which mm-hmm. visually looked pretty cool, but they just made a lot of very weird changes and decisions that just made it completely collapse. Um and so I don't know. I I, I have a there's a, a bit of me like you're you're immediately just like no fuck that it's never gonna work. But I'm nope. but I'm like I'd be curious to kind of see it. That's why I even went to go see Aladdin. But then I was just like no, this is just not working. I think I'm too the Iron Giant. I love it too much to have like an objective opinion about it. <laughs> like I've talked before on the show. Like there's just certain things that like my bias blinds me to to, to compare it with anything else. I feel so like this is one of those things. I just don't think I could see this story told again and like not compare it to everything yeah. I love about the original. That's the question that I guess a lot of that Disney has been faced with, you know, or has been in the conversation for the last, since they've been remaking all these things, animated things and making them live action. I think that was the most recent one, Mulan or something. I think that came out like it during was. the pandemic. Um, Earlier this year. Yeah. And you know, it's like, why are they, why are you even doing this? Oh, it's a cash grab, <laughs> or they're just trying to like obviously you know keep their properties relevant and their value up and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's probably both, <laughs> but um, yeah. and also you know there's a whole generation of course that 
hasn't seen those older movies, and this is probably their first. You know, this is their introduction to it. Introduction to it, yeah. Um, and so you know, uh, I I'm not opposed to it if it's done well. Apparently, like the Cinderella one was really good. Um, I never saw mm-hmm. it, but apparently that was. A I think good I one. read that was the most like different as well. Oh really? From the the original story, I, I haven't seen it, so I can't. I, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about this like I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, heard, I, don't. I heard that um, one was good. I heard that one was probably the best one. I heard that uh, Beauty and the Beast wasn't bad either. But um, mm-hmm. I've only I saw the Jungle Book and I saw Aladdin, um, and I was actually pretty excited to see the Lion King. But then I never ended up seeing it just because of the cast. Um, mm-hmm. They had like Donald Glover and Beyonce and Seth Rogen, and I was like, wow, um, and John Oliver <laughs> randomly. Um, and Eric Andre, Eric is Andre, I mean, yeah, just like on paper, that sounds amazing. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, I just didn't really have any interest in actually seeing it. So now here's the here's something I wanted to talk about when it comes to an- okay. animation specifically. So I've had a hard time watching animated films um, more and more as I've gotten older, where it's just ha- it's, it's just hard. It's hard for me to connect with things, and maybe it's just the ones I'm seeing. Like I said, I went back and watched this, and I don't think it's nostalgia speaking. This is a legitimately a good movie. This is just a good movie. Oh, yeah. Movie. Absolutely. Um, the last... And we've talked about Avatar as well. Like, Avatar oh, yeah. is loved by a lot of adults yeah, as well. Yeah, I went back and watched that during the pandemic last year, like near, near the beginning of the pandemic. So it's still great. Um, but mm-hmm. and the last animated movie that I saw that I just really liked was um, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I thought that was great mm-hmm. i thought the animation was unique and i think for me really it's i have a hard time connecting with certain things but also most of the animated films at least a lot of popular ones that come out these days are, are usually pixar or maybe dreamworks right um mm-hmm. and i've seen more of the pixar ones i guess than dreamworks but um with with pixar i feel like there's a lot of the movies they've made because now they're making one like basically every year now um where it used to be every few years maybe but now there's one like every year, and um, I feel like the the animation style is just like copied and pasted from movie to movie. Whether the stories are different, and they're they're telling all different types of stories and settings and all that sort of stuff, um, and they're bringing in a lot of like good talent as far as um, you know, like writers go and musicians go and stuff like that. But I feel like just visually, I'm seeing the same movie over and over and over, and that's kind of a problem for me. Um, sure. I, I saw some discussion online um, about that recently. There's a trailer for um, the new Disney animation movie coming out, the musical, like en- Enzo or Encanto. I can't remember. But uh, some of the discussion in the comments section was somebody echoing the same sentiment. Is like, wow, a lot of the like Disney animation stuff has that certain look to it. And that was always kind of true. And that is kind of more of like the brand. So yeah. it's you, you have like each movie has their own flair, but like it's all under the umbrella of Disney animation. And that was like how it was in the nineties. Like you look at the way they made beauty and the beast and uh, the little mermaid and Aladdin, it has that same animation style. And you go back to like freaking sixties, like um, princess Aurora I can't sleeping beauty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sleeping beauty and like snow white. It's like, they all, they always have the same visual style too. They did. Yeah. It's, it it is a bit intentional and I get your, your argument or your critique that like 
each one should be a bit more distinct, but it is for like the branding. Yeah. I would imagine is like you, you see that level of quality and you immediately associate, Oh, it's a Disney movie. Oh, it, my kids are going to like yeah. it. Yeah. You know, I think maybe part of it comes from just like maybe, I mean, I mean, I can't really, I can only speak for maybe our generation, but our generation, I felt like between flipping between like Nickelodeon and like Cartoon Network and kids WB or whatever. Um, there were, so many different cartoons that had all different visual styles. You know, there was only like a couple of shows on Nickelodeon at once that had like the same visual style where it was like Fairly Odd Parents and Danny Phantom because it was made by like the same Those exact were people. Made by the same right. dude. Yeah. Um, but then you take a show like Johnny Bravo and it doesn't look anything like uh, Dexter's Laboratory or it doesn't look anything like um, – Powerpuff Girls, or it doesn't look anything like SpongeBob. Well, Dexter's Lab and Powerpuff Girls are made by the same guy, but I get your point. But, but I'm saying they had, like, you go from show to show. All these shows are on at like the same time, and they all look a lot different. Ed, Ed and Eddie, um, um, flip over, and you watch uh, the what's it called, uh, the Justice League. That's or, a good point. Um, I see, yeah, I see what you and, mean. And like none of these look like the same. Whereas if I watched like um, I don't know. The, the humans you see in Inside Out are look like the same humans mm-hmm. you see in Coco or the same humans you see in, like, whatever. Like, and they give the same expressions as well. Mainly, it might be just the expressions as well. This is the face mm-hmm. you make when you're happy, and this is the face you make when you're concerned. This is the face you make when you're angry. And it's just like I feel like I'm just seeing a carbon copy of the same thing over. And so I guess I feel like we were like kind of spoiled <laughs> at a time where, you know, mm. there was so much variety in, like, just animation. And I don't know how it is nowadays. I don't know if that's how cartoons and stuff are made or they're a bunch of variety or not. But, uh, I think I got used I think to there's that. Some variety. I, got, I mean, you had, I mean, this adventure time's not on anymore, but adventure time looks very distinct from regular show versus gumball, um, versus like Craig of the Creek. Um, so it is still happening. And I wonder if it's like a money thing. Like it just comes down to budget wise. Like if you're going to throw $200 million at a single project, you want to, focus test the shit out of it and see what's worked before and what doesn't. Yeah. Whereas on, on like TV shows, you have a much more, you know, limited budget. So creative, you're allowed to like take more risks cause you're not investing as much in it. Yeah. Even, um, uh, this is not a animated film. I guess it's a stop motion film if I remember correctly, but, uh, this movie Kubo and the two strings. Do you remember that movie? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. From, um, Laika. Production studios. I don't know. I'm I'm probably not. Pronoun- <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I know. I know the movie you're talking uh, about. That, uh, yeah. I guess it's not really animated film, but I, I guess I kind of maybe view it that way. That was one I really liked too. Just just it's animated. Just visually, it just looks. Well, there yeah, there was there was some kind of animation they had in it, but it just visually, it just it's it's different. And so I don't know. I guess I'm just more drawn to that sort of thing, and not not mm-hmm. necessarily that it just looks different, and therefore I'm going to like it more. It's just like. Um, you know, it's fresh. It's, it's, it's fresh. It's, it's hard to, it's hard yeah. for me to like, cause, cause at the end of the day, they're just trying to, they're just trying to tell a story. Right. And, yeah. and so, um, it's hard for me to get in there. You like emotionally, <laughs> if I feel like I'm just yeah. watching like a flat thing, you know, I don't know. Um, or just a carbon copy of something else. And so anyway, sp- bringing that back to the iron giant, um, it's been, it was kind of refreshing. It's been a while since I had watched a, um, like a 2D animation film. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like, this is this is just good. I could see this working in not this medium, I guess, if they 
did something else. I guess it speaks to the power sure. of what they did, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. 1999. What a, what a year for movies. Yeah, man. You got The Matrix and Galaxy Quest. You had uh, this movie, and I don't know what else came out there. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we'll have to figure out. Well, the movie we had planned we, uh, for this week, we pushed to another time. But, uh, and that's not from It was not in 1999. <laughs> uh, decidedly, it was not. Ni- Maybe it could be. Who knows? We don't know when that was said, actually, right? It wasn't made in 1999, but it could be said in 1999. It's like retro. That's true. <laughs> it is pretty fantastical. Uh, anyway, yeah, The Iron Giant. you have anything else, Salak? you have anything else to say about this movie? I love this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Aniston plays um, uh, Hogarth's mother, Annie. Hughes. Henry Connick Jr. is Dean, Dean, the hippie, the beatnik. And the dude who's uh, Frazier's dad plays the general, uh, if you're familiar with Frazier. <laughs> the guy who played Frazier's dad on Frazier. He, he's the voice of the general. He did a lot. He was also, he played the voice of um, the old man in Atlantis, the Lost Empire as well. Uh. The guy who like funded the whole expedition. Um, I'm pretty sure that was that guy. Um, anyway, yeah. Great classic movie. I've never seen go it. Watch it. Uh, go watch it. Um, and you'll like it, probably. Uh, <laughs> I, right. I would say. Probably. Not much. Uh, Who, I, I challenge you not to like it. Not much racial diversity, but it's Maine in 1957. So, uh, <laughs> uh, in some tiny town called Rockwell, which I don't even know if it's a real town or not. But, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> talking about this week as far as music goes Izzy, 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 Ezra <laughs> Furman um, <laughs> so shout out to my buddy John he introduced me to her um, about two years ago we were just sitting on the couch after uh, a night at Riot Fest in Chicago and I, we were just like dude we're just gonna show each other songs and he showed me one of her songs and I was like what is this? This is amazing. So, I, I can't remember the, the first song he showed me of hers, but one of the first ones was Wobbly off uh, this album. Of course it was. And I it was I was so transfixed. Like, this sound, it, it's one of those, you know, once in a while you find a band or a song that scratches this itch in your mind. Yes. And it just feels so good. You put it on repeat and show it to everyone you know. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that was probably your first um, encounter with her as well. Because, like, Everyone I visited for like the next six months, I'm like, you gotta listen to this song. Yeah. This is an amazing song. So this was probably like two years ago then, right? You said it was Riot Fest, so uh, Correct. wasn't last yeah. year. Yeah, fall uh, 2019. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I remember you. Pl- I remember you playing a cover of uh, "Restless Year" maybe a couple of times. Mm-hmm. You definitely did it when we did yeah. that karaoke thing a month or two ago. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I played another one of her songs, the "I Want to Be Your Girlfriend." That's not at, at some point. I think. That's not, it's uh, not on this yeah. one, um, but yeah, I like I love playing the song "Restless Year." I think she she just has great songs, good, um, good energy. Yeah. It matches your whole vibe. <laughs> after, after, <laughs> after 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 listening to like a whole album, I was like yeah, this is another Alec album. <laughs> yeah, this is right yeah. right up your alley. Um, yeah, so that was my first introduction. It was like when you um, just you, you, I'm sure you played some of her songs before, but also the thing what I remember was you actually performing uh, a couple 
of mm-hmm. her songs. And then you had that you have that uh, you have that thing on the wall right over there. I do. I uh, she did a live show last year during the quarantine. Um, and she made limited posters for it, so I I bought one, and it's hanging in my music room. Yeah, um, which is which is great because she's wonderful. So uh, now explain the uh, reasoning for why we you why you chose this album uh, with the Iron Giant. With Iron Giant, well, first off, this is one of my favorite albums like ever. And, like, <laughs> when I first started listening to it, I went online and, like, it got a three out of five stars from some fucking site. And I was like, fuck this site. <laughs> this is, like... What is this pitchfork I, bullshit? <laughs> yeah. Um, it just... I connected with it so hard. Uh, just the, the sound of it and the lyrical content and just how the songs would flow together. And um, even though there's only... It's very limited amount of instrumentation on the album... The uh, doesn't sound like it somehow. It does, yeah, it doesn't. Like, there's drums on every song, but like the drumming in in each, it's like a different kit for like each song. Mm. Like the the drums on Restless Year sound like it's being played on pots and pans, whereas something, um, like Haunted Head feels like a more traditional kit. Uh, and it just it's a good time. Like, there's some sad songs, but like it leads into a happy song, and you just that that push and pull i feel like is so good but to answer your question why do we talk about this with the iron giant uh ezra pulls a lot from um like 1950s rock and roll and and like doo-wop uh kind of music because uh, i believe i read somewhere her um parents were into that kind of music i think her dad was um and that kind of 1950s aesthetic of, of of rock and roll and um her lyrical content of feeling isolated for for being different i I thought would resonate pretty well with where our characters start in the iron giant plus the backdrop and and the setting plus again i just really wanted to fucking talk about (laughs) right yeah you had mentioned uh wanting to do um one of ezra's albums uh at some point in the last few months um and no i I got exactly what you meant just listen after listening to the first couple of the tracks you you get that sort of uh retro um kind of swingy vibe on some of these tracks um, mm-hmm. which, yeah, I think, uh, which, which I think fit that, um, I couldn't even remember, honestly, exactly when we decided to do the Iron Giant, I couldn't remember exactly what year it took place. I just knew it was like somewhere around mm-hmm. that time. Um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of like, there's a little bit of like doo in there and like classic rock mm-hmm. and roll in, in there. Um, and I think there's only really, I think. The only track on this al- well, that's not true. The, the most obvious like dancey track I would say on this album is actually "Wobbly." Is, would would be mm-hmm. my uh, argument. Um, that song stands out to me on this album, um, amongst the it's, other ones. It does have a different, yeah, uh, like musically, it sounds much different. It reminded me. First thing I thought of when I was listening to it, I was at the gym when I first listened to this. <laughs> Um, I was like, this, what a vibe this sounds like for working out. There's some really, I would say tip of the match is a great song to work mm-hmm. out to. Uh, Oh yeah. You should put that. That's your, that, that heaviness that like over distorted saturation. I was vibing to that as I was working out, honestly. Um, yeah. but wobbly, the first thing I thought of when I was listening to it, like a minute or two in, I was like, this sounds like a song that would be like on like Pee Wee's Playhouse or something. Like it was like, oh, well, like really? well, wobbly's like the word of the day or something. <laughs> and then everyone's like, ah, 
it does kind of go back to that, um, you know, in like the fifties and sixties, there'd be like a new dance craze where it's like learn, learn the twist, yeah. and it's <laughs> Do like the almost has the, those instructions like in the song, and like yeah. there's a specific dance to it. Yeah. I get that vibe. It's like everyone do the wobbly. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little goofy, but um, it's interesting. So you said that's the first song you heard of his or hers? Sorry, that's uh. Uh, the the one that stands out in my mind. I heard a couple off her new album, um, which was the the punk record, and then a couple off of uh, a couple other different ones. But that was one that stood out to me the most. That I was like, I'm gonna like we were gonna go to a record uh, store the next day. I'm like, I'm going to buy every record of hers that this store has, <laughs> uh, which was just her most recent, which is a, a punk album. Yeah, her last three albums have been. This album, 2015, is like a pop album, and then um, a concept kind of experimental um, rock alternative album, and then just a straight up punk album. So she does just crazy shit with like each release. Yeah, I hadn't, se- I, I had never uh, heard of her until I think you brought her up. Um, but I looked up some mm-hmm. info on her, and like, so she had like she was in a couple, she was in like at least one other band before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess doing this solo thing. Does, does this just like the name? Or does she work with like mm-hmm. a band, the same people? Do you know, or like, or is it just a solo? She would thing? do a new backing band for um, her first couple releases when she was with Ezra Furman and the Harpoons. Okay, um, it would be a new backing band. But ever since she started doing stuff under her own name solo, uh, I think she has like a, um, like the the same people uh, she works with for every release. Okay, yeah, I saw that. Um, I saw that that it was called mm-hmm. Ezra Furman and the Harpoons. Yeah. Um. Like their first album came out in like 2005 or something like that. Um. Mm-hmm. So what? I, th- I believe she was like a teenager. Too oh wow. When doing that stuff. Yeah, she's in her I believe mid 30s. Oh okay. Um. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I didn't look up how old she was. I saw that like recently. Uh. I thought so. I assumed that she would come out as transgender like a long time ago, but I saw that that was, that was like recent. Mm-hmm. That was just like a few months ago. Yes, she. Um, from what I gather, she, she's gender fluid or she didn't want to label herself as one total thing. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a lot discussed on this album. She has the lyric, like my bot, uh, my body specifically, um, bodies made this particular way, mysterious forces. Um, I can't remember the exact words, but it's a mysterious process that doesn't involve you. And it's like, I'm going to figure this shit out on my own. And in interviews, she was always hesitant to label herself just as a transgender woman. So uh, this year, she finally, like, labeled herself. Like, she felt comfortable enough to say, I am a transgender woman. Okay. Um, I, I, yeah, I thought, it, that song, uh, My uh, Body Was Made, that song, sound, when I was listening to it, it sounded like um, it's a song that was, um, had, like, some country music influences in it i mm-hmm. guess which i thought was that was an interesting choice because I, I think that lyrically was like the most straightforward even just from the title and then mm-hmm. just like uh what she's talking about through it is pretty straightforward so i just thought it was an interesting genre to kind of like maybe hop to because it's on the tail end of the album and it's right after tip of the match which is like a really like kind of like hard rocky song yeah like and then it, heavy and yeah. then it switches to like kind of like country a little bit slower tempo song um which I thought that song stood out to me as well because of that specifically because of the sound of it. Uh, yeah, that's what I love about the the whole sounds of the record. Like each song, like it feels very cohesive, 
but each song has its own like flavor of country or hard rock or rock and roll or doo-wop. My favorite. Uh, yeah, what was your favorite it's song? It's probably Restless Year. I don't know. I, I like that one. Right? It's such a banger to just kick off the album I w- with. I, so I first li- so I started listening to this album in my car when I was driving to the mm-hmm. gym. Um, and I was like blasting that first track. Um, and then by the time I got to the gym, I was like on like maybe the third or fourth track. But um, I was like, wow, yes, this is, a, this is a good summer. This is a good summer song. I started thinking about like, mm-hmm. um, I started thinking about like the albums we've picked, and if uh, ones we should pick uh, should be like summer albums because we're releasing all these in the summer. Like, check out these because it's the summertime, mm-hmm. um, like seasonal sort of releases or whatever. But um, no, I, I, it's, a, it's a good it's a good vibe for for now. I would say it's we had a conversation on I think maybe like the Alex Leahy "I Love You Like a Brother" episode, but uh, where we're like we were talking about like seasons for different artists or music or whatever. Mm-hmm. Where would you where would you uh, where would you place this album seasonally? I guess I would say coming out of spring into summer. Spring into summer, personally. Because there's, uh, you know, there's the upbeat energy tracks where it's sunny and starting to warm up. But there's also those like seasonal depression songs, like uh, "Ordinary Life." Yeah. Um, where she's talking how she felt like she was an astronaut cut from the ship and wanted to die, and it's like as good of a time as you can be having at at any point in your life. You're gonna have those days where you just feel like, fuck it. Um. So that's. Where would you place this album seasonally? Um, well, I felt that the first half of this album has a little, a little different vibe than the second half of the album, um, mm-hmm. where the first half is, uh, you know, musically a little more upbeat, and um, uh, whereas the second album is uh, the the shift maybe a little bit into like acoustic guitars and like keys. And maybe a little bit less away from um, loud drums and and electric guitar, mm-hmm. um, and so because of that, you know, I, I would place this about probably about the same spring to summer. I suppose it's not a winter album. <laughs> I think yeah, it's definitely not yeah. a winter album. Um, but uh, and I guess uh, while we're at it, because we didn't have this conversation for the last two we did. Uh, yeah, what do you, where yeah. would you place those two albums? Where would you place Evil Empire and? Um, Yoshimi versus Yoshimi battles the pink robots. Yoshimi is definitely a spring album for me. Spring album, all right, yeah, yeah. Very blossomy, you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very pink. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and, it's in the title, uh, dude. Uh, Evil Empire is like the hottest day of the year <laughs> in like late August. It's like you were just frustrated. You were hot and sweaty. You're like fuck this. <laughs> weather and that's when you put it on because you're already upset (laughs) oh man yeah rage is summer bro rage is rage is all summer all the time rage is the the like the heat of summer (laughs) not necessarily like the good times yeah 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 all right Uh, that's our seasonal recap (laughs) yeah uh our like quarterly our quarterly uh recap uh, (laughs) quarter season recap um yeah, this album it's it's such a different sounding album. Like the the way she, she sings, it's like there's this snarl to to how her vocals come out, and like I don't I don't hear that kind of like rough around the edges 
sound be or like singing being played with like this kind of rock and roll sound it feels very not well nostalgic i guess in a way to like what you imagine old rock yeah sounds like but it's not even really that's not really how rock and roll really was i believe like it wasn't like that hard aggressive like sandpaper vocals it it was more i don't don't know i'm just kind of talking out my ass i think no i think her voice did her voice just her voice alone especially on those harder rock songs made me think of like a lot of those like 1980s bands uh, like singers um mm-hmm. um which I, i'm i'm blanking on I, the whole time i've been trying to like think like who does who's our voice sound like something from that era i could i couldn't place it exactly mm-hmm. but behind it isn't um maybe the same sort of attitude or even sentiment uh being shared um mm-hmm. Which which was interesting, but I, I like very unique, kind of like a little, a little like raspy maybe, but um, mm-hmm. where there's like a bit of more like maybe yelling and mixed with singing in some of the songs, um, mm-hmm. uh, which was which was cool, which was cool to hear. Yeah, like tip of the match that M part. If you feel like the tip of a match, then strike yourself on something, and then she just belts. So, yeah. why the title "Perpetual Motion People"? I feel like, as opposed to why the last album was called "Yoshimi Battles the Big Robots." <laughs> Very self-explanatory. <laughs> so, I mean, simple answer is that first track, "Restless Year." Like, you just got to keep moving. Like, and that's very much in line with like the past couple months in this post—well, not post-pandemic in this pandemic world. Uh, how things are starting to open back up and people are starting to like get out and want to do things again. And it's like, everyone's kind of catching up for lost time. Mm-hmm. So you got to keep moving. Plus the, the, the sadder songs like ordinary life. And, um, you know, my body is more of like, uh, my, my body was made. is more kind of like a triumph funky song, but also there's some sadness in there, but, um, you got to keep moving like through that stuff. Like it, it, to me that the title is you just keep going, you know? happy shit the bad shit that comes at you you just kind of keep on keep on moving through it yeah what'd you think uh agreed disagree i think so i hadn't given it uh, i guess too much thought i kept like staring at it uh staring at the cover and thinking about it um and uh yeah i'm just gonna punt and say yeah i agree with you That's good. It's better. Uh, that was about the time, 2015. So um, she's dressing more feminine and more open about um, her sexuality, I think, starting with this album. I got you. And uh, you said this is the first time you've been introduced to her. Uh, she's actually doing all the music for uh, Sex Education, the TV I, show I, I, on I read that on the Wikipedia page, um, which I don't think I've seen. I've heard of that show, but I have not seen it. It's a lot of fun. It, it's set kind of like in a timeless period somewhere in the UK. Okay. Uh, I say timeless because everyone dresses in like 80s clothing, but um, everyone's got cell phones and they don't like for like concretely establish like a time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said she wanted to do it because like the university, the, the universality or the just universal feeling of like, being young and trying to figure your own shit out that she really identified with. Okay. So she wrote some original songs for that. And also some songs from like, uh, this album and other albums have been shown up on the show too. So, um, she got a big boost in, uh, um, 
fans from from that show because it seems like the online sentiment for that show overall is is very positive. It's one of the Netflix shows a lot of people seem to really enjoy. Yeah, I think I heard in that. I heard it, I heard it was good. That's how I heard it from some friend of mine. They were talking about it. They really liked it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, yeah. What's your so? Yes. Do we already mention uh, what, what are your favorite top? What are your top three tracks from this album? I the one two punch of wobbly and uh, ordinary life is like it's so good. Like I love how wobbly has that like upbeat dance like they feel to it, and then the first line of ordinary life is I'm sick of this record already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and it kind of goes with that like that different feel for that second half we were talking about. I like so I love that, but I love my body was made. I love restless year. Uh, lousy connection is is really great too. Um, oh, let me let me ask you. So, top three songs, but also, what do you think of the final track? Uh, so top three are "Restless Year," "Hark to the Music," and "Tip of the Match." Um, and "Hark to the Music" is so good too. And the whole album, I just really like the album. <laughs> something that I was thinking about uh, with that last track was so I didn't think about it until I listened to it. Um, was it almost sounds like the album's already ended and you like somehow were placed on another album well to, to me that's how, it's like a whiplash of i, I was uh, i was thinking styles. about um maybe lyrically i was thinking about um you know speaks about sin and maybe this is just kind of like a americana thing i guess but um just speaking about like i was wondering about her relationship with like religion and stuff like that I saw uh, mm-hmm. on the Wikipedia page that she, she's Jewish. Um, mm-hmm. and, and she's like uh, a practicing um, Jewish woman. Jew. <laughs> which is very interesting. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I was thinking about like how, uh, I don't know, for me, me hearing that sort of language in a song, like to say, to refer to like something that's happening in your life as like sin, just using the word sin, I guess mm-hmm. makes you think like, okay, so there's sort of like reflective thing happening here. Um, and then you're like tying it back to that uh, belief that you have. Um, and I was just curious. And then I kind of, after I listened to that song, I kind of went back and like listened to some of the other songs where they had mentioned other sort of like biblical references. To me, hearing biblical references, like, it just kind of stands out more to me, I suppose. Um, mm-hmm. Even if it's like more commonplace, just saying the word God is technically a biblical, you know, reference. Um, right, right. Or something like that, or saying faith or sin, you know. These are words that are like heavily tied towards, you know, Christianity or Judaism or um, a lot of. I guess just belief yeah, in general, belief. In, a, in a higher power. Yeah, um, and so I was just, I was, I was just kind of. That's that was my sort of takeaway from the song. It made me kind of like think more about like where she was coming from as far as like um, just her belief uh, in spirituality. I guess um, mm-hmm. not so much about like the sort of whiplash, I suppose. But actually, to t- to tell you the truth. When I listen to this album, I listen to like all of it up to I think like Potholes the first time, and then I didn't yeah. listen to the last two tracks, and I just started over again, listen all the way up to like Potholes again, and then I went. So yeah. I only listen. Oh, really? I only listened to the last two tracks like a couple of times, and then I listened to like the first. Can Can I sleep in your brain? Is such a like. <laughs> God, I I really love that song as well because it, it's just so universal that feeling of like seeing a stranger mm-hmm. and just being like, I want to like, I want you to think about me. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Yeah. Ezzy, 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 Ezra. <laughs> Ezra. I don't know why I'm doing it. Uh, check out Sex Education on Netflix uh, if you like the show. Then you'll hear some of her music. Or uh, just check out this album. It's just a great little uh, pop album. Uh, rock and roll pop, but it's modern. And it's also fun and sad and all, everything all at the same time. So if you're looking for something a little different... Check it out. So, Christian, what, what was your overall just impression? It- uh, I liked it. Um, it was a nice sort of uh, change of pace from, I guess, the last two albums we did, which, uh, you know, technically this is like another rock album, very generally, broadly genre rock album, mm-hmm. I would say, but still it's unique compared to the other two. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, the, my joy out of this, honestly, is just like is, is, – if I'm being completely honest, is you introducing me to new music, um, yeah. stuff that you're into, and I know you very well. And so, like I said, when I listened to, it, I was like, "This is right up <laughs> Alex Alley." Right. You you hear it, and you're like, "Oh, I can see like <laughs> shades of Alec." Like, yeah, yeah. It's I, I very much like my. It's one of my top three albums, and um, any music that I have just like that personal connection to, it somehow like weaves its way into me. Yeah. So. so I find it, you know, it just listening to some of these songs just gives me good, good vibes, similar to like when you introduced me to Alex Leahy, um, mm-hmm. or um, or um, Chai or Kiro Kiro mm-hmm. Benito. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it all it kind of matches that sort of vibe, very uh, kind of upbeat and happy music with like serious undertones maybe in there. So uh, that was that yeah. was my. And when I listen to Rage, I'm like, yeah, because Christian's just an angry, angry. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm a, Hispanic. I'm, man. A, I'm an eclectic guy. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, well, uh, that's been another episode of Ha 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 Fantastic. Um, Hope you found it. Ha 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 Fantastic. <laughs> we found it. Ha 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 Fantastic. We found it. Ha 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 Fantastic. Um, so yeah, we'll see you next week. We have a movie in mind that we're we're supposed to do, but we're going to do this week. We'll see if we still do that one. Um, uh, should we give him like a, a clue, a hint of what it would be? Uh, this movie's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> this movie's very sweet, yeah. It's a very sweet movie. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, all right. All right, everybody. Email us at uh, ha, 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 fantastic at podcast at gmail.com, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.